0: Hi, I'm Kelsey. And I'm Alexa. And have you always been curious if Winona Ryder is actually crazy? Are you dying to learn how to stay out of a cult? Then you should definitely check out the Psyched Podcast. The podcast where two psychotherapists analyze real and fictional figures from pop culture and tell you all about the obscure psychological phenomenon that your
1: Psych 101 class didn't have time to tell you about. So grab your cocktail and head over to psychedpodcast.com and check us out. And don't forget to go to therapy and get your shit together. Bye.
0: This is a Lip Media Podcast.
1: Deviant women.
0: Welcome to Deviant Women. This is the podcast where we talk to you about Deviant Women from history, mythology, literature and contemporaneity. I'm Alicia.
1: And I'm Lauren. And um, I'm having a coffee because I'm trying to stay awake. And I'm having a glass of wine because it's 2.30 on a Sunday (laughs) afternoon. (laughs) And you're trying... To go to sleep. So wine I sends you to sleep. You're
0: actually the one who suggested the wine. I was. And then you switched to coffee. Well, that's because. After I'd, I'd poured you a glass of wine.
1: Well, that's because I think I took like four sips of my wine and then I was like, oh, yes, I'm falling asleep. <laughs> and I should counteract that with a coffee. So I'm having a, a mug of coffee in my um, lovely labyrinth mug that l- here at Lauren's house.
0: <laughs> Jim Beautiful. Henson. It's got Bowie and Jennifer Connolly in the ball scene on the mug. It's. It's pretty beautiful. That was a gift.
1: That was a gift from our friend CJ. A dear friend. That's beautiful. So hopefully that'll wake us up. But this is our, well, we need to wake up because we need to be excited. We need to be exciting. Excited for the end of the year. Is that what what you say? That's what I'm saying. This is it. This is the last episode for 2019. The last episode for the decade. Of the decade. The whole clink, clink, mug and sounded terrible as always. (laughs)
0: I need to get some crystal. Actually, I have crystal, but I'm not getting a crystal out. For, <laughs> You're
1: not getting crystal out for this shit.
0: No. Not for this shit. No, not for no. this shit. Sorry.
1: But that's it. This is the last one for the year. So over the following months, you can still get us in your ear holes. We'll have a few things coming out. We'll
0: probably drop one or two specials. Like we usually do our Christmas special. Uh, we'll see how we go with we'll some other stuff. That's right.
1: But we are still going to be continuing
0: our Patreon content as normal. So if you really miss us, you can jump on over to Patreon
1: little as two dollars a month, and you can continue to get new content from us over the summer. Exciting! And then we will be back in uh twenty twenty. Yes, and we'll the be roaring twenties. You did the exact same thing in our last episode. Yeah, I know. It's just that I get really excited <laughs> when I think about the fact that we're about to be in the twenties. <laughs> it is pretty exciting. So we will be back with more Deviant Women. We will be launching at the end of February, February the twenty seventh. Twenty seventh. Put it in your diaries. It's get a, that countdown started. It's a leap year next year. Yes. So um, just so the ladies ladies know you can propose to the love in your life (laughs) yeah that's that's a concern of mine particularly no i is that still a thing is that a thing that people do i I have no idea all i know is that it's it's definitely Monica proposed to chandler was that a leap
0: year when she did that what the hell
1: yeah why would i know that i don't know that's a really good question clearly i'm not the kind of person that watched that show (laughs) clearly are you friends shaming our audience no i'm not friends shaming our audience (laughs) at all i just never watched it okay fair enough because if it was the 90s i would have friends shamed you then yeah but i know better now i know better now but
0: that's not what we're talking about today we're not talking about friends or proposals or
1: anything excellent what are
0: we talking about the roaring 20s no. You can stop. That's as good. you've done that multiple times. As I hinted at last time, I picked a figure who was doing a lot of stuff in the twenties, but actually most of her really interesting story took place in the 30s. But you know, we're oh, in artistic life. we're in the area. We're in the we're in the zone. Man. We are in the zone. We're actually doing quite a quintessential twenties, thirties thing that we Excellent. haven't done before. And we're going into the seedy underworld of mob life. <gasps> Some mobsters, (gasps) some gangsters.
1: So we did touch a little bit on mob life when we talked about uh, Lizzie O'Day way back in season one, I think. Yeah, way
0: back. And that was in um, our own country up in uh, northern Queensland Queensland. and Townsville, a little bit of gang life. This is much more quintessential gang life because we're in Harlem in the
1: 20s and 30s here. Yes.
0: much Uh, more Bugsy Malone. Malone. Much more Bugsy Malone. It is. There's a lot of pie face
1: Various of, like mm-hmm. yeah, pie related violence. What of Child Jodie Foster? Yeah, yeah. It yep. Could have been anything that you <laughs> wanted to be. <laughs> do, 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 do. I mean, that. loved that film so much I when I was a kid. Great. Oh. I was in a high school production of Bugsy you? Malone. Uh, but I mean, I was just in the chorus. Oh, but still, good times. Yeah, fun.
0: All right, so um, yeah, so we we're not with Bugsy Malone. Sadly, we are with the Queen of Harlem, a racketeering queen of the underground, oh. Miss <sighs> Stephanie Queenie Saint Clair. What a name. Yes. What a name. And she really ruled what was known as the numbers racket, which Ooh. I will explain what that means um, in Harlem. And she ended up with a quite powerful mobster nemesis who caused a bit of trouble for her. And we're going to see how she responded to that in true Queenie style. Fantastic. So, shall we. Dive on in. Take me there. Me and my coffee. Take okay. Me. So our Queenie, as I'm going to probably refer to her throughout this as Queenie. Her I'm name not. is Stephanie Sinclair, but I'm going to call her Queenie. She wasn't called Queenie yet, but she was Busty born.
1: Sinclair, Chesty LaRue, Hootie McBoob,
0: <laughs> none of
1: those. Where are those names from? The Simpsons.
0: Ah, right. Yes. Yeah. So our Queenie was born Christmas Eve, December 24, for those yes, you didn't who
1: didn't know. You didn't know.
0: 1897 in the Caribbean, probably in French Guadalupe, although uh, scholars are not a hundred percent sure because the story, look, okay, her story, she's one of these women who had a tendency to, as a few of our figures oh. have before, mm-hmm. uh, self-mythologize. Yeah. Which means that there's a few
1: discrepancies, particularly in her childhood, and... We should start doing that for ourselves. Oh, yes. More. We need to do some more self-mythologizing. Yes. where We'll work you... on it over the holidays. Okay.
0: Yeah, we'll create some stories for ourselves. True All fact. right. We're already... At, there's a splintering of the story there's two versions of her childhood and I, I should say that most of my research is based on shirley stewart's work she wrote a phd thesis about stephanie sinclair which was then published as a book and she's sort of the foremost scholar on queenie's life okay. and she writes that uh, she was born to her father Amadie Sinclair, who was likely an artisan, who was probably either born free or was emancipated as a child. So, Because oh, okay. something that's also, of course, really important to keep in mind is that many of the Caribbean nations at this time were just coming out of slavery mm. because, of course, they had a very,
1: very big slave trade in the Caribbean, a really horrific slave trade yeah. in the Caribbean. I sure did. So whereabouts was she born? Like what? French quite a little bit. I mean um like what year was she born? 1897. Oh, 1897. So yeah, they right, right. they
0: had been emancipated for, for a few decades. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is why her father was either probably like first generation
1: freeman. free yeah. mm-hmm. free freeman.
0: And he had skills though. So he earned like a relatively good income. They were quite prosperous as a family particularly, I guess, compared to a lot of other people. And her mother, Anselin uh, Matro, I hope I'm saying that right, she was born into Guadeloupian elite, apparently. So Ooh. they were sort of, yeah, upper echelons of Guadeloupian society. However, according to another version of her childhood, she was raised alone by her mother. In this version, she is called Felicienne. Ooh. And it was a much harder... Mm-hmm. poorer existence where her mother worked very hard to send her to school in both versions of the story though she's very well educated she learned to read and write in multiple languages and she did you know take to her studies yep. quite well so in stewart's version which is where she's of this upper echelons of society she had pretty good prospects as a kid like she would like would have been likely to go on to marry well and live a life of comfort but this wasn't to be
1: Mm.
0: as in both versions of the story she left guadalupe at just 13 for the u.s this was either because according to the more depressing version of events she was forced to take on work as a domestic servant as a maid And in this tale, she was employed by a rich family but suffered sexual abuse at the hands of their son. Oh, dear Lord. And when her mother died, she emigrated. Mm, Okay. According to the prosperous version of events, it's likely that her parents had already probably been considering having her move to give her a brighter future, but then her father became very ill. And because her father became ill, she was also one of – four children, the third daughter of four children. And so it said that they thought that this would offer her the best chance of a future. And they were would have been a very respectable family as well, you know, this sort of nuclear mm. family, parents, four kids. So they wanted the best for her. So what's agreed on, though, is that she arrived in the US in July 1911, apparently via Marseille, France.
1: Ah, oh, What? So uh, that sounds like the time that I went to fucking America the long way. Like via Marseille? <laughs> not via Marseille, via, Kits- via Qatar. You know how you can go the short way or you can go the long way? Oh, you, go- you went to the US via Qatar. Yeah, totally the opposite direction. That's really not on the way at I all. I think it was just a cheaper flight. Yeah, and so I just did right. that thing where I was like, this is going to take me days longer, <laughs> but it's going to cost me less money. I feel like she did the same sort of thing
0: maybe 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 <laughs> she just had a stopover in marseille yeah again according to the different version of events she either spent a bit of time here in marseille or she just never went there at all but she had very french sort of mannerisms and very french European French. Well, it was French Guadalupe. It was French Guadalupe, but the difference is that the kind of European Frenchness in Mm -hmm. the way that she carried herself, in the way that she spoke French, all of that kind of stuff. So we don't know if she actually picked it up in France or if she put this on because she wanted to seem more respectable.
1: Oh, right. Okay.
0: Because that's a really big part of her whole image and her whole deal is she very much carried herself as a lady and Mm -hmm. she wanted to be seen as being very prosperous and very elegant um, and all of that kind of stuff. So this could just be her way of legitimising herself and, again, creating that self-mythology. But we don't know. She very well may have been in Marseille. A big problem is that we don't actually know very much about before she arrived in in the US. Um, Many people born in the Caribbean at the time, well, particularly obviously black folk, were not recorded once emancipation happened because there was no longer... (sighs) Are you going to say I need to? An economic Yeah, mm-hmm. motivation. Yes, correct. Which is, of course, yeah, hugely problematic and fucked up that the only reason you record somebody's birth is because. They're going to be, it's economically uh, yeah. viable to do so, yeah. yeah. And I also think it's interesting that we do have these very contrasting versions of events like her childhood. These are two starkly different versions of her childhood. Mm -hmm. And they offer up all kinds of questions, I think, about like the legacy of her story and maybe the way that she wanted to be remembered. Mm. Yeah, because it seems like I said Stuart has obviously done a lot of research, so I am inclined to believe her version of events. So where has this other version come from? Has it come from... Queenie herself and why would she have mm-hmm. does she want to have that kind of that
1: scrappy yep. having risen from rags to riches mm-hmm. sort of story mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so well I yes. guess we'll see where she ends up in life and whether or not yes. that indeed has any impact
0: well because when she arrived in Harlem she disappeared essentially she disappeared for like 12 years we have no record because
1: like you said she arrived when
0: she was like a teenage girl yeah she arrived she was 13 when she arrived and in all likelihood she would have gone into domestic service as well and i guess the assumptions about this kind of because at this time over 75 percent of caribbean immigrant women and over 66 percent of african-american women in manhattan were employed in domestic service yeah right so it's very likely that this is
1: where she ends up. And there are accounts. Disappears into that sort of domestic yeah. service, yeah.
0: And there are accounts of her ending up with a family in Canada for a bit, working as a maid. Wow. Yeah. But either way, she eventually ended up living back so, hang in Harlem.
1: So when, so when she first arrived, we assume she first arrived into New York. Yeah, yeah, she
0: arrived in New York and either went to live in Harlem and worked as a maid in New York or she spent some time in Canada and came back to Harlem. But either way, she did spend a lot of time in Harlem in that sort of 1910s-ish sort of period Mm -hmm. where there are domestic service is one of the largest employers of women of colour particularly. But also what's interesting in Harlem at the time was that it was – a very obviously a big neighborhood for black folk, but there were tensions between the African-Americans who already lived there and the Caribbean Mm -hmm. immigrants who lived there. And the tensions are very complex and I can't really distill them in the amount of time we have, but basically, because this is important to understanding the way that all of this sort of plays out. So both of these communities, as we've sort of talked about, were suffering still from the kind of the trauma and the intergenerational trauma of slavery and both had obviously been emancipated but black americans were emancipated into the u.s which was economically prosperous but they were racially segregated Mm -hmm. from this and so they weren't allowed to partake or benefit from the economic growth of the u.s so they suffered from marginalization and exclusion whereas in the caribbean those they were emancipated into relatively well a more kind of equal society because it was those nations then governed themselves so they did have more independence so they had uh, the, the racial tensions were not the same mm-hmm. they were more racially equal but they weren't as economically prosperous. Mm. So you've got these two different, really quite different experiences of emancipation where one, yeah, you've got, yay, economically your country is doing well, but you are not allowed to participate in that. And on the other side, you've got, okay, you don't have the same kind of oppression, racial
1: oppression, but you also don't have economic opportunities in the same way. So, yeah, I mean, I suppose New York at the start of last century, was such a, a melting pot, especially in those areas of New York Harlem, where there was just such a melting pot of so many different people from yeah. so many different places. You also had your Jewish hmm. communities, yeah, you had absolutely Irish, Irish communities, Italian, and all of those communities were uh, were very much on the margins as well. Yes. So there's a whole melting pot yeah. of all these different marginalized communities that are. Marginalised from the mainstream society, but then at the same time also completely ostracised from each other. Yeah, and and infighting with each other as well. Precisely,
0: because you still, I mean, just as much then as now, you have the whole rhetoric of the immigrants are coming to steal your jobs, Mm, mm -hmm. and this is particularly threatening to people like you know African Americans who have been there for many generations and who have been clawing their way into positions, you know, like desperately trying to enter the mainstream yeah. economically. And then you have all of these other migrant communities coming and competing for those same jobs. Yep. And so there were all of these tensions that arose around that literal like,
1: oh, the the coming to take your jobs. Yeah, exactly. kind of. But, but it's like you're coming to take, not only is it like, oh, you're coming to take the mainstream jobs, but you're also coming to take away all of these other jobs that nobody well, else wants to do. That yeah, we're that's tra- right. That we're doing those ones, and now you want those ones too. And then they're fighting a, for yeah, the same
0: jobs. They're fighting for those service positions and yeah. the the laboring positions and the factory work because yeah. white people aren't going to let any of them into white collar jobs. Yeah, you know. And so they're all fighting over the jobs that white people don't want, which is fucked for so very many reasons. But it did mean that it's not even like these two, like the communities could all kind of we in together. the same boat. Yeah, because yeah. they were being pitted against each yeah, other right. by external forces. Yeah. And this was made worse <laughs> of course, by policies that have a lot in common with what policies that we are familiar with here in Australia. We in Australia had the White Australia Policy, which essentially excluded migration by anybody who was not of white European ancestry. And basically the same thing happened in the US. So they had a policy that was on paper all about, quote, "protecting jobs. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Of course, it was very much a disguise for racist policies. which the dicta <laughs> Yes, okay. sorry, that's all that makes me think of. <laughs> the gerbs. Which excluded immigrants of African and Asian descent. And forced them to take a literacy test. So this also happened in (gasps) Australia where migrants were forced to take a literacy test. Now, fortunately, a lot of Caribbean migrants were very well educated and they could sit those literacy tests and they passed them. So there were all these policies in place. And like I said, they were a thinly veiled disguise for just outward racism mm. and that senator james reed of missouri stated i am not in favor of permitting to come into this country to become part of our citizenship any kind of people except white people
1: so <laughs> but you know what's horrendous is that that sort of rhetoric has not gone away it's literally it's still people you here say, yeah a hundred years later and the same exact same wording pretty much mm. like that hasn't about changed.
0: protecting
1: – well, in Australia here we have,
0: yeah, right-wing commentators who are all about, like, yeah, protecting Australian jobs. It's about ensuring economically that Australians are being looked after. It's just a disguise
1: for your racism. It's just picking and choosing who you think <sighs> you want to live in this country. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's just shocking when you look back at this period of history or any period of history and you can make those parallels to where yeah. we are now. And, oh, yeah. Terrific. We've not come – Anywhere near as far as we should have mm-hmm. in a
0: hundred years. Yep. <sighs> anyway, so let's hope the story goes up yes. from here. Well, okay. So something that did unite them. So as I said, there are all of these tensions, and they are largely being put on them from external forces who are kind of saying, "Hey, no, 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 you guys are fighting amongst yourselves because you know they're coming to do your jobs, etc." But of course. They were united in the sense that all of these groups did suffer from racism from white people. And as much as these tensions around job security and ideas of nationalism affected tensions between African-Americans and Caribbean immigrants, they were worse between sort of, you know, black people generally and white people Mm. because this is happening at the same time as the end of the war, right? Yeah. Okay. So all of these servicemen are returning, facing insecure employment. There's also the rise of socialist ideas that mm, are coming out of mm-hmm. Europe. We're seeing the first sorts of like unionization is happening. Strikes are being held. So, yeah, there's a lot of tension
1: happening very Generally, I feel like we could all just watch Gangs of New York and it was summarized this for us. That was on television last night. Oh, was it? Is
0: that why you thought of that? No, not at all. There you go. Not at all. (laughs) But there you go. Anyway, so these tensions exploded in 1919, which is what would go on to be called the Red Summer, where thousands of black folk were murdered by white supremacists. There were race riots. There were lynch mobs. And so, like in Arkansas, for example, despite the enormously disproportionate number of black deaths to white deaths uh, 79 black people were convicted of murder and 12 of them were sentenced to death and so this is like five white people died and hundreds of black people died mm, mm-hmm. and 79 black people were convicted yeah of these crimes so that's the kind of thing that's happening and this is a huge long very complicated history as i said don't have the capacity in this podcast to go into it but it's important to understand that this is the this social is the context yeah, yeah this is the context there's a rise of nationalism <laughs> nazis are on the rise and i think why I, one of the reasons i wanted to share that history is because it's actually not that distant and mm-hmm. it's not that far removed from now yeah. where nationalism is on the rise nazis, nazis are on the rise
1: <laughs> who ever thought that that would
0: happen <laughs> One of the things that came out of this, And though, that
1: rhetoric is back. As we were saying before, I saw that same rhetoric, whether or not that rhetoric even ever went away. No, but I don't think so. Yeah. 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 <sighs> But one of
0: the things... But that it's
1: going to be a new decade soon <laughs> so and well, everything yeah, will go, be better.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. We're going to go into the 20s and... Everything will get better.
1: I don't know. Do you remember what happened in the last 20s? There was an, a Yay. major economic downfall. That's the right. world was ending. Oh, well, this is what we started talking about in our last episode, you know, that whole... It was only 100 years ago that there was an entirely man-made eco- ecological disaster and yeah. 100 years are in the same <laughs> fucking spot but it's the last episode of the season so Yay. we're gonna we're gonna get upbeat okay. soon well i'm gonna talk
0: about the positive now because one of the things that came out of this was the rise of a lot of activism so there were a lot of groups hey and also yeah. very similar oh my <laughs> yeah.
1: god history repeats
0: that's why we need to learn history everybody uh there was organizations such as the universal negro improvement association and the african blood brotherhood and both African American and Caribbean immigrants came together in these groups and this brings us back to Harlem and to Queenie and as I said while we don't know too much about what she's been doing in the intervening 12 years we do know that she spent a lot of time in amongst this uh, as you like melting pot as you said and she also lived very close to a lot of these organizations some of them were on her street so she grew up well, yeah, grew up because she was 13 when she arrived. Mm. So the um, the UNIA officers were on her street and she grew up amongst these, not just the... Which one was that? The UNIA. The Universal Negro Improvement Association. So that was on the same street as her. And one of the founding members of the African Brotherhood, who was a woman despite the name Brotherhood, oh, yeah. Grace Campbell, she lived very close by to Queenie. So we know that she would have had contact with a lot of these people and she would have had contact with these organizations and she was very much influenced by them, Mm. as we shall see in a lot of her activism work. So this forms a really important part of her identity because I did talk about mobsters and gang warfare, but I guess Queenie is, she's like the benevolent queen mobster. If, if you're going to be if a there queen, there is lobster, such a thing, yeah, right. Yeah, so activism was a really core cool part of, of her work. Yeah. So, as I said earlier, she did present herself very much as a lady. She wanted to be elegant. She was also very intelligent, and she was very entrepreneurial. And according to some accounts, she was also quite arrogant and self-aggrandizing. But sure. Of course, let's set that aside for now. (laughs) And essentially, I think she kind of believed that she was fit for a better life than not to say that, that there's anything wrong with domestic work or that the women who worked in domestic work, weren't intelligent and entrepreneurial Mm, mm. because often they were incredibly entrepreneurial and they had so many businesses that they ran out of their homes. Yeah, they were basically
1: like small business owners. Yeah, exactly.
0: And again, I think this is very influential on her is that she saw the ingenuity of all of these women. She saw the creativity, the hard work of all of these women and she had her eyes set very, very high. Mm -hmm. She was going to make it big And so she got herself involved in the policy operation business. Does that mean anything to you? not a thing. What would you guess when you hear policy operation business?
1: Writing policies for something? Like, (laughs) I I don't know. I mean, well, it does. It sounds
0: like you go to a cushy office in Manhattan, you've got a PA and you talk around the water cooler at lunch, doesn't
1: it? Yeah, but that's clearly not. That's impossible.
0: That's not what it was. No, <laughs> no. Policy operations was basically a mixture of investing, gambling and playing the lottery. Ah, oh, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Definitely very, very different to what that yeah. title suggests. <laughs> yes. Because yes. at the time. Well, the word operations does ring alarm bells. Like it does yeah. make me feel like it's got to be a little bit underhanded, like quote, unquote, Oper- operations.
0: Yeah, because it's happen? very – it is actually – hugely structural as an organization like there's a lot of parts of this lots of moving parts it is an operation yeah yeah another thing to know is that at the time this is not going to be surprising to anybody and i'm sure most people probably do know this but many banks wouldn't
1: loan money to black customers that doesn't surprise anyone no no one's surprised
0: and so basically they were forced to set up their own banks their own forms of investing but these were not technically legal. Okay, so this is where we get the policy side of it because it was like a bank. It's a banking system except that it's a banking system that also relies on gambling and so it's not legal.
1: <laughs> what an excellent type of banking system. Yeah. Well, you know what? I feel like that's not very far off of what banking systems do anyway. Well, no,
0: in terms of it's like an investment Potluck. Yeah, and it basically just allowed black folk to make money through various other means that they were otherwise excluded from. Mm. So what had happened is Queenie had come into mysteriously somehow come into ten
1: thousand dollars what which is a maybe lot of money seriously i wish i could mysteriously come into ten thousand dollars maybe on my way home today i'll mysteriously come mysteriously <laughs> into-
0: this is ten thousand dollars in 1923
1: that's a fucking lot of money so
0: much money i don't even know what the contemporary equivalent of ten thousand dollars in bad 1923 is yeah. but it's a Fuckload of money and i'm guessing that she didn't make it just saving her pennies while she worked as a a maid for 10 years because i don't think that she would ever have been able to save that amount of money i don't know maybe who knows so maybe it could be done people guess that she made this money by playing the numbers Mm -hmm. so she was a customer before she became involved as a ringleader yeah
1: So what kind of gambling are we talking about? Or am I skipping
0: ahead in the story? No, 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 that's a good question. So basically it's a lottery racket. So it's an underground illegal numbers game. Basically people wagered on a single number between 0 and 999 that would turn up as the day's number. So every day. Oh, so this is
1: like Kino or yeah, like yeah. basically just like Lotto.
0: Yeah, it's yeah, exactly, yeah. except the numbers are only 1 to 99, so you got a 1 in a 1,000 chance instead of like a 1 in 24 million yeah, chance or something right. like that. Mm-hmm. And the number itself was chosen, so they didn't have like a little turny legs 11. Yeah, they didn't have a little whatever. What are they even called? I don't know, but we're doing the Yeah, we're, we're doing, doing the, the motion.
1: The bingo rolling yeah. cage.
0: Yeah. What the fuck? I'm sure it's got a name. They didn't have one of those things. No, no bingo rolling. So they took the numbers from this system that they claimed was impossible to fix. Basically, Sure. every day the New York Clearing House, which was a financial institution, published Numbers. So an employee would come out into the lobby and write three figures on the board. One of these figures was the total of the daily clearances among member bands. The other was the Federal Reserve Bank credit balance. And the daily number for the game, for the numbers game, was worked out by combining the second and third numbers from the bank clearings with the third number from the Federal Bank Reserve. So for example, if the clearings were $589 million, you would take the eight and the nine. Right. Okay. Five, eight, nine. So you take the eight and the nine, second and third. And if the balance was 116 million, you would take the six, the third number. Mm -hmm. Don't try
1: to make me do the maths.
0: So then you get a number, the day's number would be eight, nine, six. Yep. Gotcha. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you as a customer are betting on that number. Yeah, 896 right. which is taken from those other I still feel like you of could fix it. I feel like people on the inside could fix it for sure. Well, you'd have to be fixing it as like an
1: investment broker but it's yeah but so it's published in the newspaper yeah because this is like the bank's profit basically that's being published but if you knew what that was before the paper was published you could still
0: (sighs) well it was only so it hadn't hit the papers yet this is what they like the numbers came out for the day this dude would run out to the very front of the building write it in chalk on the building then the the Journalists and whatever would take that number from there, and then publish it, and then publish it. Right. And so the people from the numbers game, they would also have their runners, yep, waiting get the for that number, mm-hmm. and they'd go and run and yep. publish that okay. number. And all right. sure, take all the. So you had to get your bets in before yep. ten a.m.
1: I'm still pretty suspicious. I still feel like you could
0: fix. It. Well, apparently it was unfixable. No, but I reckon you could fix it. There was another method that came up after they stopped using the clearing house that we'll talk about. That's going to get more interesting. So you could usually like you would bet a few cents up to like maybe a dollar or two, and you could bet on just the one number. So if you did pick eight, nine, six, you'd be just betting on eight, nine, six, or you could bet on a combination of those numbers. So 698 or 986, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So, obviously, you get different winnings depending on whether you get your number or a variation of your number. This is where it was happening in Harlem. They created this game. It did spread into other cities, but this is sort of the prime place for it. And the numbers became a really, really important part of the community because everybody was involved. So everybody from all social groups, all economic classes were involved in the numbers game in Harlem. And I I should emphasize that this is very much within the black community. But you've got your preachers, your teachers, everybody is playing the numbers. And the prophets then, it meant that they largely remained within the community. And so people would spend their winnings on rent, on food, on clothing, going out for the evening. They would donate to the church and where there were no lane loans or investment opportunities to be had. They also allowed residents to accumulate savings. Right. Okay. And the numbers, like the policy operators were the biggest employer of black people in Harlem. Right. So these operations were huge, like, and they employed a lot of people because you had, there was the numbers runners. The runners were the ones who would go out and collect the bets all over Harlem. So Mm -hmm. they would go knocking on people's doors or they'd set themselves up on a street corner and people would come to them. They worked on a commission, so they took 20% of the receipts. And if someone won, the winner was obliged to pay 10% of their winnings to the runner. Oh, really? So it could be quite lucrative.
1: Right.
0: There were also the controllers who were the accountants and the clerks. So these are the people who accepted the receipts, totaled up all the money, yep. like hundreds of
1: finance. Yeah, stuff. Oh hundreds of thousands of
0: bets, yeah. you know, dollars worth of bets. They were the ones who figured out the credit and the payouts and all of that. So it's a very big operation. Yeah, it's enormous. But as somebody who ran these like policy operations, you obviously had to have enough capital that you could afford to pay out, mm-hmm. you know, when they need to. Yeah. And so if you're thinking about it, like the runners and everyone, they they can potentially make a lot of money, but that's nothing compared to the bankers
1: yeah. who really, really made it big. So who were these kind of people who were in charge, who were running the show? Like what sort of positions in society did they hold? Well, these were people like Queenie. So
0: I mean they were people who did obviously have a lot of capital or were able to come into it, but they were just local community members. Mm. At the time, like When it first started, when Queenie first became involved, it wasn't an organized crime structure. So the mob hadn't moved in yet. So these were Mm -hmm. just ordinary community members who, like some of them were like doctors or, you know, whatever. I think Mm. one doctor, I think he got arrested for running a policy operations business. But of course the community were just like... Yeah, good on you. That's fine. Like, yeah, okay. So You're suppose, not a bad guy.
1: Yeah, so I suppose this is all obviously under the radar of the authorities. Mm-hmm. Who I guess would have a an under inclined... the radar,
0: like quote unquote under the radar. Yeah. So
1: they know that it's there and they yeah. know that it's happening. But, but for the most part, you turn your back on it. Yeah,
0: that's right. So when Queenie first started, actually, she had a police officer accost her and threatened to arrest her. And so she challenged him because she was like that. she was not the type of person who took shit from anybody so he hauled her off to the station and the lieutenant was basically just like okay so here's how protection money works oh yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and it was just basically explained to her like okay we know you've got this racket going on if you want to continue it you're gonna we want cut us a slice. We want to see some of that cash. So face. yeah. So and she was just like, oh, okay, great, fine, whatever. Like this is an expense, a necessary expense. Yeah. This, of, is yeah. this is business. This is business. Yeah. She also was like friendly with the mayor and politicians. You know, so she was greasing pockets where she needed to. She was very diplomatic in that sense. Very good at talking yeah. to people. And yeah.
1: so how does she get here? So she gets here, obviously, from starting off in the policy operations office or whatever it is
0: well we don't actually know because she sort of she launched herself as the banker the banker like so she started her own operations business with that ten thousand dollars capital that she had yeah she launched her own she didn't work her way up somebody else's no Ah. and so were there multiple ones going yeah yeah, there were multiple lotteries and like i said they employed heaps of people and you could make really decent money working as an accountant or whatever for one of these mm. bankers, mm-hmm. but if you had enough money, you could start your own. And she—that's just what she
1: did. She went straight to the top. She had she a was mysterious like, money, and she was like, "Hello, world. Here I am. Yeah. Here's my numbers racket. Get on board." So she she partnered up with a guy who
0: did have mob links. Mm-hmm. His name was Ellsworth Bumpy Johnson. Oh, what a great name! Yeah, that's good, Bumpy Johnson. And he he was essentially like her bodyguard. I think she called him her lieutenant. <laughs> So he was a right-hand man, basically, and they set the operation up together and pretty soon she had 40 runners, 10 controllers, and a whole staff of people supporting them. Wow. She just launched and she went big straight away. And
1: soon she was earning $250,000 a year. I wish I could. I mean, even – do you know what? Even without a conversion – if I was earning $250,000 a year in today's I know, money... I right? I would be fucking rich. Right? So $250,000 in 1920s money. Yeah. That yeah. is insane. But she's a millionaire yeah. by today's standards. She's making millions of dollars oh, a year. Crap. She did
0: very well for herself.
1: I will never make that much money. No.
0: How <laughs> sad. And because, as I said, like this wasn't being run by organized crime yet and so the policy bankers didn't need to rely on violence or intimidation and stuff like that to run their businesses they, they just ran them like businesses mm, except mm-hmm. that like i said they were greasing the pockets of the yeah. police and politicians however she would unleash her temper on her rivals so her other the other policy operation bankers And on white-owned businesses that tried to move in on her turf. So she was protective, but not overly violent yet. Mm. Oh, okay. Because, well, I guess the mob eventually was going to get wind of how lucrative this was. I can
1: imagine, yes.
0: And remember that this is – so we were in the 20s. We've got prohibition. So most of the mob's interests were in – you know, prohibition and in supplying alcohol and running clubs and speakeasies. speakeasies. And so they didn't necessarily... Grand
1: Slime, <sighs> Grand Slime, Speakeasy. Once you get here, feel the good cheer like they send the poem. Fast Slimes ain't humble, but it's your home sweet home. Okay, thank you. Thanks, that's all right. But that's I feel like there are so many Bugsy Malone <laughs>
0: songs that we will fit in today's episode. And if you haven't seen Bugsy Malone, it's such good fun. You should definitely check it out. But it's not quite the same thing no, as this. very different. <laughs> so the mob, yeah, they got wind of this was a really good thing because the prohibition ended. Well, yeah, so they couldn't rely on liquor schemes anymore. And a lot of the speakeasies had been in Harlem, so they were familiar with the illegal activities that were going on and they ran basically every other illegal activity except for the numbers game. But they had kind of dismissed it at first because they just saw it as being, you know, just yeah, Mm. small town little local game. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until one of the bankers, I think, he got kidnapped and they realised how much cash he had on his person. Oh, my gosh. And how big the ransom
1: was that was paid. That was paid, yeah, that's right. So it's like as soon as that's paid, it's like, oh, hang they on They were now. like, what, how much money did they just pay you? And then they were like, oh, this
0: is much bigger than we thought it wow. was. And so they started moving in. But Queenie had really established herself by this point. So she was very, very well known within the community because she was a hugely public figure. So she wasn't just hiding behind, you know, this illegal activity. Like she was very forthright about who she was and what Mm -hmm. she did. Mm -hmm. She would publish ads in the newspapers, which were essentially all activist-based. So she used a lot of the money that she made from... The numbers game to educate the community about things like inflated rent and what to do uh, about yeah, inflated right. rent. Uh-huh. She encouraged people to vote. She was a she supported the Democrats and she was had a particularly democratic message and would point out policies that worked for the empowerment of the residents of Harlem. Mm. She encouraged Caribbean immigrants to become U.S. citizens, especially because this wouldn't help increase the numbers of voters. She also supported the French Legal Aid Fund in Harlem, which helped French-speaking Caribbean migrants find employment, learn English and apply for citizenship. And she really understood the power of the media. And really importantly, and again, in an issue that is as big today as it was then, she placed a lot of ads calling out police brutality. Mm. One of her first advertisements was called Complaints to the Mayor About Highland Police. It was published in 1929, and it called out the illegal actions of the police, things like illegal arrests and searches and seizures. She also, this is great, she also used her ads to call out guys who were annoying her. Oh, my God. So, yeah. Yeah. Because she was very powerful, very and she would publish photos of herself along in every one of these ads, so she was really visible. It's like early social media. It is. It is. And so she would get a lot of, like, solicitations from men because they were like, oh, this is really powerful, (laughs) beautiful single woman. And they would obviously, like, she got a lot of attention and and she took out ads basically telling them to fuck off and, like, Saying that she wasn't looking for a sweetheart, and if men didn't stop harassing her, she'd name and shame them in the press. <gasps> Fuck yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and so basically, she's really she is creating this image of herself as this very politically minded, mm-hmm. strong empowered woman who works for her community so even though she was running this illegal racket and making a shit ton of money people loved her Mm. because she was so community minded yeah and funneled so much of her money back into the community yeah but then of course as i said the mob are on their way and so enter a man named Dutch Schultz. Now, he was a German-Jewish bootlegger and a mobster who ran operations out of the Bronx. His gang rivaled the Italian crime syndicates, and he was known for being very violent and having a temper, mm. all of those things that mobsters are
1: Yeah, well, I think it's in- that's interesting as well that, that this should be the first person to come on the scene because I think that idea of the mob... It's very much connected, especially in a New York sense, it's very much connected to that Italian community. Mm. But it extended well beyond yeah. into so mm-hmm. many other communities mm-hmm. as well. Well, yeah, because he's German-Jewish. Mm. So
0: he was also an outsider within a lot of those Italian Like, yeah, they were rivals of each other as well. And it's complex. It's going to get complex actually soon. (laughs) And he had actually just been involved in a gang war. And a lot of this is ethnically driven. Yeah, definitely. He'd just been involved in a gang war that saw many of his men shot. And when he refused to make one of his men an equal partner, this guy mutinied basically Mm -hmm. and was like, well, fuck you. I'm going to go make my own gang and vowed to murder him and take over his territory. So, of course, Schultz took care of that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean by taking care of?
1: Somebody went and slept with the fishes. Yes. Wore a pair of concrete boots, something along those lines. He did. He made him. How many more stereotypes <laughs> did I throw in?
0: Yeah. What others are there? Oh, those
1: are the two I've got for yeah. now.
0: He was sleeping with the fishes. So it meant that by the time that kind of gang war was over, he needed a new source of income. Because he had been running these speakeasies in the Bronx and Harlem, he knew about the numbers racket. And he knew that because it was currently non-violent, he could use his connections and muscle to force his way in. He could use his violence to take over. Mm. Yeah, basically. genius. But first, though, he did actually use his political connections first. So while Queenie did have some contacts and she did use the mayor and she used the police and and the courts a little bit, well, she tried to manipulate them, he was quite powerful. So he had the police because he's also very, very wealthy, and he had the police, bail bondsmen, lawyers and judges all in his pocket and he had them basically arrest a bunch of Queenie's runners mm. and throw them in jail. Mm-hmm. So without the runners, the whole operation it falls down, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. He started then his more violent approach and as a result of what became called the Numbers Gang War, there were 40 murders and six kidnappings. Wow. Yeah. So what year are we in here? So this is now the early 30s. Yeah, right. mm-hmm. And actually on that, in the early 30s, the New York Clearing House, which was the financial institution where they published the numbers, yeah. they knew that the numbers racket were using those numbers. Yeah. And they were like, okay, we're going to stop publishing them outside the building like this because we don't want to be involved. Encouraging that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they stopped publishing the numbers, which meant that the numbers needed to find new numbers. Yeah. So they needed new impartial numbers. And so instead bankers began sourcing the numbers from the horse races. Oh, okay. Now, (laughs) this is not quite as unfixable as the clearinghouse numbers because what Schultz did, he had this like whiz accountant, this guy who probably had like a photographic memory or something, but like was able to calculate massive sums in a very short amount of time and so what he would do is this accountant would mentally calculate the minimum amount of money that schultz needed to bet at the track in order to manipulate the odds Uh. at the races and this in turn manipulated the numbers Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so essentially schultz was well he was yeah. <laughs> he was determining what he wanted the numbers to be. And so once he would get all of his bets in and they would figure out, okay, well, which numbers haven't been bet on, he would then ensure that those numbers came up so that basically he was minimizing the amount that he had to pay out. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: And so this meant that there was no longer as much money flowing back into the community because there's no longer anywhere near as many people winning and... <laughs> He also cut the income of the bankers who worked for him, Mm. so all the accountants and things who worked for him. And when he did pay out, there was a very good chance that once you you got your winnings off of him, there would be a group of men waiting (gasps) for you at the end of the street. Oh, no. To take it back off of
1: you. Oh, shit. So this guy's like a piece of shit. So, But who's working for him? Is it still people in the black community working for him? I'm actually not sure, to be honest. I don't know if he
0: had moved in to the community in that way again yeah i don't know which is interesting actually the implications of that Mm. yeah i'm not sure but queenie became really enraged at this behavior as i'm sure you can imagine like she was like not on my fucking turf mate like because he's cheating and becoming violent he's doing everything that she was really fundamentally against because she's also all for the empowerment of black people mm-hmm. and here's this white guy who's moved in on this one this one thing that they have mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. supporting the community and allowing them financial independence and taking it over yeah fucking like white people are so good at doing <laughs> are we so good at doing that it was basically gentrification of the yeah <laughs> of the numbers game
1: definitely
0: And so in 1933, she really openly defied him. And she was the only person who was brave enough to be really public about how much she hated him and thought he was a massive dick. And on page one of the New York Amsterdam News, she declared, I'm not afraid of Dutch Schultz or any other man living. He'll never touch me.
1: Mm. So
0: she's big words. Well, she's, I mean, she's directing this at a mobster. She's like yep. basically inciting war, isn't she? Um, yeah. I, these are things I would never say to a mobster. <laughs> no way. Unsurprisingly, like he was not impressed. I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah. Unsurprisingly, as you say. And once, okay, so in the summer. They're fighting words. So once a, lim- yeah, a limousine pulled up at the front of Queenie's apartment and a bunch of men in suits got out. So this is according to witnesses. Witnesses watched this limousine pull up. A bunch of men in suits got out. A little while later, a bunch of men in suits got back in the car and it drove away. And it turns out that the men were not Schultz's men. They were Queenie's men and they were coming after she'd called them after receiving a visit from one of Schultz's men who she had then locked in her closet (gasps) and called her bodyguards over to come and take care of him. Oh, my God. And this man disappeared. (laughs) Oh, no and yeah so that kind of sent a little bit of a Never message heard from again so Schultz stopped sending men to her apartment <laughs> and instead he put out a contract on her life oh no so he paid five hundred dollars to a woman named Catherine Odlam to lure queenie into her apartment and kill her but what? yes well i guess maybe he figured that because she's a woman she'd be Trust less more or yeah. less
1: Afraid. Mm.
0: But Queenie found out about this. So she heard word that this contract had been put on her head. And so she went to the press (laughs) and told the press, like, he's put a contract out on me. Like If I die, you'll all know why that is. Yes. And this is the other way that she used the press. Like, she was so good at using the media because she basically – used it as a way of documenting everything yeah that's true so if anything happened to her Mm -hmm. people knew because she had been telling the press everything that happened yeah yeah and it was yeah basically a way of keeping track Mm -hmm. (laughs) she also sought protection from the mayor joseph mckee and the mayor's bodyguard who assured her that she would be protected so she then went to the Washington Heights court to apply for a warrant for the arrest of the guy who had hired Odlem, the hit woman. And the ju- so she does try to manipulate the courts and the press and everything, but she's not always heap successful. So the judge sort of dismissed her. He was like, mm, is there a contract down on you though? Like he didn't really take
1: her that seriously. Yeah, right. And so she That's turned. That's great. That's always great when it's oh. some when there's a contract out in your life and the the law won't believe you. That's really well. It says a lot. I mean, here's this
0: black woman in a white court being like, <sighs> yep. "There's a, a guy trying to kill me," and he's just like,
1: "I think you're is being there, a bit hysterical." Is love. there really? Yeah. So
0: she turned her back on him and faced the audience of people.
1: Yeah, fucking good honor.
0: And started lecturing them about how that moment was so representative of so much of what was wrong <gasps> oh, wow. in the U.S. and why there was so much crime in the U.S. So she's literally like – and you have to remember what the, what a defiant symbol that is yeah. of turning your back on the judge yeah. and lecturing the audience like, this is what is wrong with America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is why there's so much crime in America. And the judge, of course, was not impressed by her courtroom decorum, but I – I get the feeling that she didn't give a fuck Mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. that. According to an age reporter, she, quote, seems to possess some indescribable complex and an apparent yen for publicity. Fair enough. Yeah. So she's very much using the press to try to create this story for herself, protect herself, and I think she just also loved it. Yeah. Yeah. As the warrant thing didn't really work out, she then um, – I'm surprised she didn't get, like, arrested for, like, contempt of court or actually, something. Actually, yeah, me too. I think he told her off. Like, he gave her a lecture about why she That's was amazing. Being, but, yeah, she didn't – I don't think she actually got in trouble for it. Mm. She was still pretty, much like, being pretty nonchalant about the threat on her life, though, because her next course of action was to go to the shops that were the front – for schultz's policy banks and started smashing shit up so she like broke all of the glass cabinets like the plate glass windows she ripped up the policy slips she like basically yelled at everybody there like the workers were there and she yelled at them to get the fuck out of harlem to
1: get off of her turf I feel like there are so many women at this period of history who are smashing shit up because that's just reminded me of Carrie a. Nation <laughs> with her smashing everything I, up. I think that they did. I think <laughs> like, women yeah. were just like, we're yeah. just going to smash fuck shit. It. Gonna fuck it. I'm going to slap shit up. Yeah, like
0: smashing some windows, yeah. all those glass cabinets. And think about it. This is a woman alone in this shop smashing shit up while these accountants, I guess, are just looking at her like, <laughs> what are you doing? Standing around being like, <laughs> what, what, do we what do? the fuck is going on?
1: <laughs> and they didn't stop her they didn't like they well no one wants to intervene with that right yeah probably no yeah. one wants to no one wants to intervene i get this sense she
0: was probably a very intimidating woman it sounds like it for sure <laughs> but that's brave that's massive She's entering enemy territory and smashing it up while there's people there that's fucking balls
1: mm. so she didn't get arrested for that no. either <laughs> Wow, i love the way she just keeps completely and utterly missing like escaping capture she's not gonna get away with it forever to be honest
0: but Mm. that's in the future her next course of action was then to basically she dobbed on him she went to the authorities with a bunch of information about his operations and this led to schultz's clearinghouse being raided so, the police arrested 14 of his employees. They seized between five and $10 million worth of policy slips, uh, which represented a day's play of $2 million and over $2,000 in petty cash. Yeah,
1: right.
0: Then she went and bragged about it in the press. Of course, she did. Of course, she did. <laughs> I'd expect nothing less. Oh, no. And I think you can find a lot of these newspaper articles still.
1: Oh, cool. Yeah. We can put some of them mm. on Instagram over the the course of the next few weeks. Definitely.
0: However, try as she might, Schultz was ultimately... He was just too powerful. I mean, he's a pretty major mob guy. Mm. He's been doing this for a long time. Plus, there were also some other mobsters moving in on the scene, particularly this one guy called Charlie Lucky Luciano. Good name again. Uh, they've always got a nickname, don't they? Oh, I don't know okay. what Dutch Schultz's nickname was. Maybe Dutch was maybe his Dutch nickname. Maybe Dutch was his nickname, yeah. Mm. We'll go with that. And he was an Italian mobster who called himself the chairman of the five families of the New York Syndicate. <laughs> As you do. Yeah. So he's up there. And so when Lucky Luciano moved in, things just got really hard. And even though she had been so successful for so long, I think maybe she was just running out of fight or mm. something. Or just decided it wasn't worth it anymore or that she had enough money. I don't really know why, but she basically started winding down operations. Mm. But I do like it wasn't Dutch himself who kind of caused her because I think she'd been really defiant up to that point. I think it wasn't until the other mobsters started moving in that she was maybe just a bit like, oh, this is just too hard. Yeah, I and is it worth
1: all the threats mm. on my life?
0: Yeah. So she relinquished control over to Johnson her lieutenant, Bumpy Johnson, Mm -hmm. and he took over the operations. But the thing is that Luciano, he wasn't just moving in on Queenie's territory. He was also, of course, moving in on Schultz's Mm. territory. Now, Schultz had got himself into some tax trouble because I guess, well, the thing about any mob operation is they don't pay taxes, but one of the biggest legal issues with the numbers game was that there were no taxes Mm. paid that was one of the major things that kind of – that made it illegal or one of the biggest avenues that they could pursue for legal reasons. Like shutting it down, yeah. Yeah. So Schultz had ended up with the district attorney Thomas Dewey on his back for tax fraud and tax evasion. So Schultz went before the commission and I want to say the, the commission, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. the governing body of the mafia.
1: Oh. Yes. That's where, yeah, Marlon Brando – Aha! Uh-huh. It's
0: sitting at a big long table. There's like a fireplace, probably a bearskin rug, and they're all just sitting around having very serious conversations mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. about the mafia and their yep. business operations. So he comes before them, and he says, "I'd really like to take a hit out on this district attorney guy," but Luciano, who is one of the one of the top guys, he didn't want this because it would draw negative attention. To the various mob rackets, not just yeah. the numbers game, but to a bunch of other stuff as well. So, like, it's not worth it. you're not off for
1: district attorneys. So yeah. Too so,
0: many questions yeah. raised. Yeah. But Schultz wouldn't back down. Luciano heard that Schultz had gone behind the commission's <gasps> back and had started asking around about having Dewey's apartments staked. So Luciano, he was like, how do you betray me like this? <laughs>
1: You've been dying to do that, haven't you? <laughs> I just decided
0: in the moment yeah, that I was going to that, do that it. that you were going to do that. Why would gonna... you betray us?
1: Yeah. That's what he said in, in his... that voice. And he was smoking a cigarette mm-hmm. at the same time and yeah. doing that hand gesture. Yeah. 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 Which
0: meant that then the commission, they had another secret meeting about what to do about Schultz because they weren't allowed to take out any hits on major mob figures. They could take out hits on the small guys, but they couldn't, do anything on any of the big players without unanimous support. And so the result was the first sanctioned killing of a high-ranking mafia boss in years. Oh, my
1: God.
0: Yes. It took them six hours to reach a decision. This is all very diplomatic. Yes, so diplomatic about
1: how you're going to kill someone. Very formal process. Bloody hell.
0: But after six hours of deliberations, and a unanimous decision was made to knock off Schultz. So on October 23, 1935, two murder inc employees what no yes that's not a real thing <laughs> it's a real thing murder inc oh my God. <laughs> they entered the palace chop house which is of course where schultz was having dinner where else but the palace chop house naturally and they gunned him down <gasps> They didn't kill him, though. (gasps) Schultz staggered to the bathroom, clutching his side, and he was rushed to the hospital, his stomach shot and bleeding everywhere. Now Queenie got word of this, and she was not going to let an opportunity to humiliate her arch-nemesis pass her by. She sent a telegram to him at his bedside that read, so you sow, so shall ye reap, and signed it Madam Queen of Policy. And then Schultz died. Ah!
1: (laughs) Not before she'd
0: gotten her final little. So she didn't win the numbers war, Mm. but she did get to have that final little moment of like. She got the last word. Yes. (laughs) Fuck you, Schultz. That's great. Yeah. So because the mob had like properly taken over operations Mm. by this point. Mm -hmm. She still made a buttload of money though. So she's doing fine. She's got one more little interesting thing though that happened after this because, like I said, she was such a big activist and she continued her activism
1: work because she was still very wealthy and still
0: able to give a lot to mm. the community. But I think
1: that's like like with so many of our women that we looked at, we've looked at in the past that actually are involved in, you know, piracy or, you know, illegal doings in whatever way, mm. shape or form – like the true sort of test of success is the fact that is whether or not they retire on all their yeah. money, you know, like yeah. they're truly successful, not when they go out in a blaze of glory. Yeah, but, but, when, they, but when they're like, all right, well, I'll just retire and live on What's all my done? money. Yeah, Done. And so <laughs> she was truly successful in that regard. That's true.
0: You're very true. That's yeah. right. She just got to continue living in her beautiful apartment because mm. she had this really expensive, stunning apartment. And she went on to meet a man named Sufi Abdul Hadid, and he was a black nationalist. Uh, another, act, so a fellow activist. So they bonded over their activism, but he wore flamboyant capes, <gasps> turban, you know, very fancy boots, but he was very controversial. He Was it because of the cape and the turban and the boots? That's the least controversial <laughs> that's part That's the least of that. our worries. <laughs> he was the leader of an Islamic Buddhist cult. Which is an interesting combination. Indeed. Tell me more. He claimed to be a descendant of Egyptian pharaohs. Of course he did. But his day job, essentially, was that he was a union activist. And he had done things like he organised a campaign in Chicago that resulted in 300 jobs and concessions after months of picketing. So he was a good union Mm, activist. mm -hmm. He also, like, confronted lynch mobs, Mm. which is really... Terrifying. Yes, Yeah, so he was very kind of militant and – okay, it's a mixed guy because while he did that, (laughs) he also – well, okay, so another good thing, another tick for him is the organised boycotts of businesses that didn't employ black people. He also ran a mosque. However – However. This seems like a big however. He was accused of repeating Nazi propaganda. He was charged with disorderly conduct and instigating a race riot – And he was known for being a bit or of an anti-Semite. He was called the Black Hitler of Harlem. Oh, my God. Yeah. He was very anti-Semitic. Ew. Which is, of course, when you're an activist for a minority group, like a militant activist for a minority group, being an active anti-semite at the same time feels very backwards doesn't, doesn't it? seem to yeah <laughs> they don't really go together <laughs> They don't go together very well like I feel like if you're yeah so that's what I mean he was a very controversial figure the two however, they hit it off and they were married well quote unquote married we actually don't know if it was a formal marriage or not it might have just been a ceremony for show. Mm. In 1936. But I think maybe Queenie saw, she saw through his racist and kind of con man ways because he, mm. it was revealed that he was essentially a con man. But maybe on, he was after her money. Well, yeah, yeah, very well because she found out that he was having an affair with, oh God, oh God where is go. this going? He was having an affair with a woman named Madame Fu Futam who was a fortune teller who published dream books but was pretended to be an Asian woman. But she was not an Asian woman. She was actually a woman named Dorothy Matthews. And so, like, it's a complicated, complicated thing. So he was having this affair with her. And so in 1938, just a year and a half after their marriage, she followed him into a building. He was going to go and meet his lawyer and she shot him at close range oh. she missed but she was arrested
1: missed at close at, range i know
0: well actually she said i only wanted to scare him if i'd wanted to kill him he would have died yeah
1: yeah i wouldn't have missed if i meant it yeah. yeah
0: yeah exactly so apparently she was just yeah trying to scare him she did get arrested of course and in the court case it was revealed that Hamid was actually a man named Eugene Brown he was not indeed Egyptian, but he was indeed, he was actually from Philadelphia. And that's when his affair with Madame Fu Futam and who she really was all came out. Oh. And so
1: oh, oh dear. Yeah.
0: So Queenie was sentenced to between two and ten years at Bedford Hills Correctional Facility in Westchester, but she only served three. So Hamid went on to marry Madame Fou a few months after she was incarcerated.
1: But then he actually died in a plane crash not long after. Ooh. I wonder why Madame Fu didn't see that coming and ah! warn oh. him. Sorry, that was terrible, wasn't it? That was
0: bad. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. It's funny.
1: Thanks. It's funny. Yeah.
0: And that's pretty much it.
1: So as for Queenie, she got out of prison. Things quieted down so a was, bit. That was pretty much the only time she went to prison, wasn't it? Yeah. Even after that whole life, mm. only that one time she went to prison for
0: three yeah. years for yeah attempting to shoot him, and she wasn't even charged with like attempted murder. She was charged with, like, having a concealed weapon. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) amazing. I know. She did quite well. There were rumours that after she got out of prison, she went on to organise the 40 Thieves Gang in Harlem, but that's unlikely because the timelines don't match up. Like, Mm. apparently a lot of that activity was happening when she was still in jail. She did continue her activist work. She continued fighting for civil and economic rights, And she basically just then went on to live a a nice quiet little life in her lovely apartment and she died at the age of 71 in Long Island.
1: Well, there again, that is the testament of success, isn't it? Just living out, like being involved in organised crime (laughs) and then just living your life out and dying Dying in your old age. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Bada bing, bada boom, done well. Well, that that went into uh, a whole world of yeah like an organized crime <laughs> yeah, that we I didn't we even, even know existed been
0: to before yeah it's really strange i doing the research for queenie i came across a few other yeah, ladies mobsters and organized crime racketeers mm. who i've now put on my list for potential future episodes terrific
1: well you know what there's a whole other season to come there is so there's who knows yep. what we might do yep. in season 4 2020 it's oh gosh so much still to come So much terrific. Well, thank you for that one. I think that was a a nice, I say, fun despite the murders and and deaths and things. Yeah, but it's like it feels like hijinks, doesn't it? It does feel a bit like hijinks. And I guess, as we always say, that distance of time makes makes it seem all all a lot more fun than I am sure it really (laughs) was in its actual when it was happening. But yeah, that was a really good one to end the season on. So thank you for taking us there. And of course, as at the moment we um can't tell you much about what we're gonna do next season because no. we don't even know yet. But maybe more mobsters. Maybe we can say. Yeah, probably some more mobsters, probably some
0: more uh,
1: Less artists. Maybe. I was gonna say
0: probably some more artists because we can't help ourselves. We can't help we ourselves, can't. we
1: love them. Can we? But of course, you know, you can always uh send us requests as well. Yeah. Um we don't often tend to sort of we we forget to acknowledge when we've done ones that are, are requests. We do, yeah. We actually just forget to say, but we do we have covered requests yes. just so you know yeah. like we're not just we don't just <laughs> ignore requests. There are plenty of people out there yeah. in the world who are like, Oh yes, you did the yeah. one that I requested. And so if you if you did have anyone that you thought might might be someone we should look out for next season. Please do get in touch. You can contact us on all of our social medias. Yes, you can find us at Deviant Women. Yes, or you can send us an email at Deviant Women uh, Podcast at Gmail You know, you can even send us snail mail. That's true. You could. We have a PO box. It's so exciting. I love snail mail. It's on the website. It is. And as we mentioned at the top of the show, if you are going to miss us desperately over the summer months with all the winter months, just depending where you are, Lauren is going to be traipsing off uh, mm-hmm. having a, a wonderful time in South America. Six weeks in South America, go to Peru, Bolivia, Bloody Chile nice. and Argentina. So if you're in any of those countries... Yeah. Keep, keep, keep your eye out. Let me
0: know. You might just see Lauren wandering so about. so true. Might be see, see me in my Deviant Women t-shirt Imagine hiking that. a
1: mountain or that something. That would be weird, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah. That would be strange. Uh, I'll just be sitting around in Adelaide crying into my pina colada <laughs> as I sit at, on the beach. Why crying? I, I don't know. I was trying to make it sound sadder Aww. than it really was because actually I'm just excited about having an, a summer off. <laughs> this, this is the first summer in a couple of years that we are not doing a fringe yeah. show, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna just live gonna up the summer. It. Just gonna live it up. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the point of that story was to remind you about Patreon. Yeah, get more Deviant Women content mm. over the because we will be releasing episodes. Even though we're not releasing episodes on our main thing. That's correct. Yes, good. And you can also buy Deviant Women merchandise, T-shirts and pins on our Etsy store. I'll still be sending those out over the summer. (laughs) And, of course, if you really love us, please rate,
0: review, subscribe. Tell your friends. Tell everybody. It feels weird that we're not going to do this
1: again for a while. Tell your lizard
0: uh yeah Ah, uh, well we've still got to record some patreon content yeah, i'm like i'm still gonna see you oh, again yeah, still gonna be recording yeah, for yeah. For, a, for a little bit longer but
1: yeah so until next season until next year until next year until next decade we hope you have a wonderful last few months of what's left of the 20 teens yeah and uh we will see you in the roaring 20s see you then boys. bye, bye.